All right, so we are, we are talking about the Lord's Prayer. Um, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Now, when he says, when you pray, pray like this, of course, the Lord knows you already pray. Jesus assumes we pray, and he just tells us, I want you to reshape your prayers in a way that bring more glory to God. Maybe they're a little clearer, a little more effective. They're, they're, they're the kind of scope and content that the Lord wants and brings him glory. So the Lord's Prayer is a reshaping prayer. And here's how we've broken the Lord's Prayer down. First of all, we pray the person of God, our Father who is in heaven, just talking about who God is, taking an inventory of God. Second, we pray the promises of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Third, we pray the provision of God. Give us this day our daily bread. We're reminded in that one line that the physical needs we have in this life are not outside of a God-centered prayer. God wants us to pray for these kinds of things. Fourth, we pray for the pardon of God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That our forgiveness in Christ is real and he calls us to forgive others. And today we're going to pick up this last part. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to talk about the deliverance of God or the protection of God. So let me go all the way back to the Old Testament to start. A well-known story of the deliverance of God. It's one of my favorite in Scripture, and that is Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. Let me take a couple minutes just to talk about Jericho and kind of set the table for the deliverance of God. You may recall that Israel was in Egypt as slaves. God miraculously delivers them. They cross the Red Sea. They're following a man named Moses. We're talking about maybe up to three million people. If you were part of that band of Israel, you would have heard the name Moses. You probably never saw Moses in person. There was that many people. They're wandering in the wilderness there. The manna is falling. Their shoes are just kind of replenishing miraculously. And so they go for about a generation, for about 40 years. Moses dies and a new leader is raised up. His name is Joshua. Joshua is going to lead him into the promised land. Joshua has a javelin and just like Moses brought the staff down and parted the Red Sea, Joshua brings that javelin down and of course the, the river parts and they cross. They're finally entering into the promised land. And they come across the first great challenge of the promised land there when they cross the Jordan, and that's a city called Jericho. God has called them to do some kind of battle in that area, to inhabit the land of Canaan, and Jericho is the problem. Jericho is the obstacle that stands before them. Now let's pause just to appreciate what does it mean to do battle with a city like Jericho? The walls at Jericho, we know this from archaeology, they're massive. They're not the kind of walls we think about today. And we're not thinking, this is not a huge city with big walls. It's kind of like a castle. It's probably about 10 to 12 acres in size. You have double walls. The inside wall might be about 12 feet high. That outer wall, we know from archaeology from ancient cities, it might be 45 feet high. And these walls were wide. I mean really wide. You can read how the Babylonians around their city would do chariot races on the wall. That's how wide they were. You're talking about 12 feet thick or so. Now, in order to defeat a city in the ancient world, you have to deal with these walls, right? Donald Madvig, who's a historian, says there are only five ways to defeat a city like Jericho with walls like this. Number one, you can go over the walls. You put ladders, you build ramps, you gradually make your way, you go over the wall into the city, and there's a battle that takes place in the city. The problem with that, of course, is as soon as you try to climb the walls, you have arrows and spears coming down on you. 
Number two, Madvig says, you can tunnel under the walls. There's a couple examples of where they tunneled under the wall. The problem with that is we're told in a city like Jericho, the writer tells us, there are very skilled men and women in that city. They're used to these kinds of tactics taking place on their walls. The odds that they're going to crawl under the walls and tunnel and come up on the other side is slim to none. This is a skilled city, very fortified. A third way you can defeat Jericho is by smashing through the walls. If the walls are thin enough, you can take a battery ram, you can smash the gate, you can smash the walls. I imagine you have uh, you know, movies running through your mind like Robin Hood and things like that where these tactics have taken place trying to take over a castle. But again, a walls like Jericho, which is a fairly wealthy city, you're talking about 12 feet thick. You're not ramming through 12 feet of rock and wall. So these options are off the table. A fourth way is by trickery. Trickery is something like a Trojan horse, where you find a way into the city and you open the gates at night and the army can come in. The problem with using that one is we're told in the story of Jericho, none were allowed out and none were allowed in. The people of Jericho and the king of Jericho know they're about to be invaded. They're not letting anyone go or anybody come. And so those are the common four ways. I'll give you the fifth in a minute. They're not going over the walls. They're not going under the walls. They're not going through the walls. And we're not doing the Trojan horse thing here in Jericho. That brings up the fifth way, which is literally the only option that Israel has. And Donald Madvik says the only way to do this is surround and starve the city. No supplies are allowed in. And at some point, the people will have to come out to fight. And that's where the battle takes place. Here's the problem with surrounding and starving the city. They are not just called to do battle with Jericho. They're called to do battle with a whole bunch of cities like Jericho. You know how long it takes to surround a city and starve a city? You're talking about years. They got gardens, they got plants, they got wells. There's a reason they build these walls where they are. So on the surface, it looks like there's no way they're going to be able to defeat a city like Jericho. If they do defeat Jericho, it's going to take them five years to do it, and then they're going to have to move on to the next city. So what happens? And by the way, the problem with surrounding Jericho is not just that they have all these other cities to to conquer. They themselves are having a crisis of inventory. They've been wandering for 40 years. You can't do this forever. At some point, you've got to settle down and build houses and things like that. Got three million people in the wilderness and tents kind of staring at walls. So here's where I want to get us into the drama of what happened to Jericho. And I'm going to suggest to you that the miracle at Jericho was not the real miracle at Jericho. There's actually another one that takes place because of the miracle at Jericho. But we have to read the whole book of Joshua to see it. So what happens is this. You know the story. Joshua takes the army. They march around Jericho. They have trumpets. And when they blow them, what happens? The walls fall down. And they go in and they overtake the city. That's the miracle at Jericho. But that's not the real miracle at Jericho. Why is it important that what took place at Jericho? Because here's what you find out as you continue to read the book of Joshua. Can you flip the slide? Look what happens here. I have to turn to read it. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, the lowland, along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, it names the Hittites, the Amorites, and all of these, as soon as they heard of this, as soon as they heard of Jericho, what did they do? They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Flip the slide, please. 
As soon as Ednine Zek, king of Jerusalem, heard of Joshua, five other kings joined him, and what did they do? Gathered their forces and went up with their armies. You see what's happening in Jericho, in the land here? The people are not staying in their cities. They're immediately what? Coming out. In other words, the way you would defend the city in the ancient world is you would just stay in your city and you'd see if you could last longer than the army surrounding you. That was common warfare. That's how you fought battles. What the kings are doing is abandoning the conventional warfare of the day. When they hear that the walls of Jericho fall down, they start to get scared that their own walls are going to fall down, and they start to come outside of their cities immediately and do battle with Joshua. And Joshua is now at the point where he can beat five to ten kings in one swoop. He's not surrounding these cities. They're coming out to him. Here's verse 11:20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. This is the miracle that took place. It's not just that the walls of Jericho fell down. It's that that miracle was so powerful, so dramatic, and became so popular that the kings in these other cities decided to abandon conventional warfare of just staying behind their walls, and they all came out together against Joshua. How many of you know that in the days of Joshua, he doesn't have to surround the cities. God does in a month what would normally take Joshua a century. God delivers the land into the hands of Israel in a dramatic, powerful way. The miracle of Jericho is so powerful that the kings say to themselves, we cannot do battle the way we've always done it. We've got to go after him. And as soon as they come out, Joshua starts to take all the cities. God is allowing Joshua and Israel to do in months what would probably take a century for them to do. That's the deliverance of God, and that's the power of God. And God uses a very unconventional way to do this. He is a deliverer, he's leading, he's protecting, and he's going before us in the battle. And so we have the passage, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation means God delivers us on the inside, deliver us from evil. He delivers us from what's out there. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. And talk about ways, there's a lot of ways we can talk about God as a deliverer. I want to talk about how God delivers us from temptation. How he delivers us from temptation. He's a great deliverer. We know that from the days of Joshua. Here's how God delivers us from temptation. This is the passage we read. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will provide the way of escape that you may endure it. All right. Notice several things that God delivers us from, okay, in this passage. He's a great deliverer, delivers us from evil and temptation. First of all, God delivers us from overconfidence. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, a lot of us get to the point in our Christian life where we feel like, Because I have faith in God, I'm outside of the reach of spiritual danger. I'm outside of the harassment of temptation. Uh, Some of us get the impression that once I put my faith in Christ, I'm no longer harassed by temptation. I'm no longer harassed by evil. I used to struggle with violence. I'll never struggle with violence again. I used to be ruled by my emotions, but because I'm a Christian, I'll never be ruled by my emotions again. 
Uh, and, and so we almost feel like we're a buoy in the ocean where we rise above the waves. My faith in Jesus means I've risen above evil. I've risen above temptation. These things will no longer be able to harass me because of my faith. And the Corinthians, in this passage, we become a little bit like them. We get carelessly overconfident, where we feel that evil can never harm us again. But what does the apostle say? He says, take heed, lest you fall. Overconfidence is an enemy here, right? Our confidence needs to be in Christ. Our confidence can't be in ourselves. I think about a riptide in the ocean, and if you know anything about riptides, they, they don't seem to be much at first. And you can see where people will play in a riptide. But as soon as that breaks, right, you start to be pulled out. And it's very hard to get out of the riptide as it pulls you back. The Corinthians feel like they've risen above evil. They've risen above temptation. So they're dabbling in all these things like meat sacrificed to idols. And the riptide is about to break. Paul says, take heed lest you fall Our faith in Jesus does not shelter us from all temptation. It doesn't shelter us from the attacks of evil. Even the most spiritually mature people around us, we are going to feel temptation. We're going to be harassed by temptation. God wants to deliver us from that kind of overconfidence. It shouldn't surprise us that half of all drownings happen to adults that can swim. Years ago, I read an article about parachute accidents how it's far more common to have a parachute accident with an expert than it is with a novice. The answer is obvious. Why? Because you start to get careless and reckless. You don't check your gear. You get overconfident, and accidents take place. I read a story about Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, in 1961 Masters. He had a one-stroke lead going into the last hole, the 18th hole. He hit a really good tee shot. He was a sure win. He said, I, I, on my way walking, I saw an old friend on the side. Everybody's applauding Arnold Palmer. He's, you know, he's won his master's, greatest golfer in the world. His friend calls him over. He shakes his hand. He says, congratulations, Arnold. You know, you did it. And, and Arnold's got two more shots. All he's got to do is pitch and putt this thing. Arnold Palmer says, I, my next two shots, I hit the ball in the sand trap. I put it over the edge of the green. I missed the putt, and I lost the master's. Now, here's what he said. You don't forget a mistake like that. You learn from it to be determined that you will never do it again, and I haven't in 30 years. Arnold Palmer was a victim to overconfidence, where you just think you got this thing in the bag. Our faith in Jesus sometimes leads us to think that we're beyond the reach of temptation. We're beyond the reach of the riptide. God delivers us from that kind of overconfidence. He wants us to trust in him and not trust in ourselves. All right, number two is this. God delivers us from isolation, the kind of isolation that causes discouragement. Next part of the verse, verse 13. No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. Well, I can only tell you that when you're in the throes of spiritual battle, when you feel attacked by spiritual forces, or you feel that you're really being harassed by temptation, you start to feel like you're all alone. I've never met anybody that's been in extreme seasons of temptation that hasn't felt all alone. We feel like we're the only ones that could possibly ever feel this. Whether it's a temptation for violence, temptation for lust, temptation for pride, 
we feel like we're the only ones in the world that have ever felt like this. And you start to look around you, even in a church, and you start thinking, I bet so-and-so has no idea about this level of temptation. But Paul reminds us here, the temptation is common to all. No temptation has taken you. You have never felt anything in your life that is not common to other people. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true. It's true in the text. In other words, you right now are sitting next to people that have felt the same thing you felt. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no way. Not, not like this. <laughs> you know, No temptation has taken you. That doesn't mean that we all feel the exact same temptations at the exact same point. But there's a general principle here. Humanity, people feel similar temptations. And even more important than that, Jesus knows, right? Jesus was tempted at all points, yet without sin. Christ knows our temptations. We talked about this this morning in small group. We talked about how Christ not only knows our temptations, he probably feels a greater measure of temptation than we felt. When you're in the throes of temptation, you might say to yourself, all right, Joe Schmo over there, he might know how I feel, but there's no way Jesus knows because Jesus never sinned. And that actually makes an argument in the other direction. Jesus knows your temptation better than you know your temptation because he didn't sin. The illustration we used this morning, one that speaks to me, is when a hurricane whips through a land or it blows through an island. And after the hurricane goes through, you can see the trees are just snapped in half. They're all laying on the ground. But there's that one tree in the middle of the island that still stands. That tree has felt the fullness of the winds. It's felt the fullness of the hurricane. If you want to know the strength of the winds, don't ask the trees on the ground. Ask the tree that's still standing because that tree felt the fullness of the winds of the hurricane. And if you really want to know about temptation, don't ask your buddy. Your buddy caved in just like you and I did. You ask the one that withstood the temptation, Jesus, the righteous. Jesus is the tree on the island that withstood the fullness of the winds of temptation. He felt temptation in a much fuller way, greater way than you and I ever would. Jesus, God, delivers us from the feeling of isolation like nobody really understands. God understands. Christ understands. Number three, God delivers us from self-sufficiency, trusting ourselves, trusting our faithfulness instead of God's faithfulness. Notice this part of the verse. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common. Here's the center of verse. But God is faithful. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? God is faithful. Paul does not say, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. And you're a really strong person, so you're going to be able to endure this. He doesn't take that. He says, he says God is faith. He puts the emphasis on God. And in this little line, he's taking a shot at our own faithfulness or unfaithfulness and putting a spotlight on Christ. I love this verse out of Job 5.19. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven no evil shall touch you. You know what this verse is teaching us here on this point? When he says God is faithful, Paul is saying wherever you are in the throes of temptation, you are never outside of the reach of God. You're never outside of the reach of the master. God is faithful. You old timers will know when I talk about Tweety and Sylvester, right? Tweety the bird and Sylvester the cat. I don't, I don't even know what cartoons look like today. I haven't seen them. 
Whenever I think of this verse, I always think of Tweety Bird, and I'm going to tell you why. Tweety Bird is in the cage, you're running around. I think it's Sylvester the cat. Is it Sylvester? Chasing Tweety Bird, right? Tweety Bird is always vulnerable, right? But Tweety Bird is always rescued by who? The presence of Granny. Do you remember the cartoon? You know, in all the cartoons, Tweety Bird is just about to get eaten by the cat when Granny shows up. And here's the point. Tweety was protected, not because Tweety was outside of the reach of the cat, but because of the protection of Granny. Because Tweety was always within the reach of Granny. In a similar way with you and I, we are never outside of the reach of temptation. We're never outside of the reach of evil. It's there. And we're not protected because we can run so far from it. Good luck trying that. It's, we're protected because we are always within the reach of God. God is faithful. Because he's with us in those temptations through the power of the Holy Spirit. God delivers us from self-sufficiency. Number four is this. God delivers us from discouragement. Discouragement. Here you go. Who will not suffer you to be tempted... Above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. God is going to deliver us uh, from, from discouragement here. Discouragement. Look at that language for a minute. No temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. It says, he will not, he, um, you will not, uh, will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will make a way of escape. That phrase, no temptation, listen to this, has taken you, taken you. That means no temptation has seized you. Grabbed a hold of you. Remember when Jesus told Peter to catch the fish and pull the coin out of the mouth? Peter seized the fish. Same Greek word. Peter grabbed that fish with the hand and held the fish and pulled the coin out of the mouth. Temptation seizes us. It has a way of gripping us. And it has a way of making us feel like we have no way to get out. There comes a point where the fish stops flapping around in your hand because the fish realizes he's got nowhere to go. He's in the grip of Peter. You and I, sometimes we feel very helpless like that. Like we are in the grip of temptation and we just feel like there's no way out of this. Like it's some kind of straitjacket. There's a feeling that you can only go with the current. That you can only go with temptation. That at some point you've got to cave in and you've got to concede to the temptation that's taken your life. I remember going down south um, to Myrtle Beach on, on vacations with my family. My kids were little, and that's when I was introduced to the Lazy River there at the hotel. Those little lazy rivers that would go around the pool, and you know they, they just kind of flow like this. We went one year, and it was not the Lazy River. I felt like it was the Rapid River. It was a lot of fun. I'm thinking, I can't believe they're letting little kids go in this thing. You know, it just whips around, almost like whitewater rapids. And even the adults, I mean, we were just really trying to push, swim against the stream, you know, And inevitably, the stream is going to take you. Sometimes we feel like that with temptation. I am so overruled by my emotions, whether it's my depression, whether it's my anxiety, whether it's the emotion, that attachment that I have to something. You feel so ruled by that, you feel like you can only float with the river. Like you're in a spiritual straitjacket and temptation has absolutely seized you. What does Paul say? He will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will also make a way of escape. That way of escape, in the ancient world, there's a story about an army that's surrounded, 
and the army finds a passage through the woods, it's the same word used here, they found a way of escape. And so when we feel absolutely hopeless and discouraged, Paul wants to remind us, he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but God will make a way of escape. That's his promise. Can I just tell you, you are never helpless to temptation. You think you're helpless, but you're not. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm Irish. That means I just have a temper, something like that. I'm a little Irish, so I think I can say that, you know. I, I vented other drivers on the road because they make me mad. I can't help it. I'm a little angry now, and that saves me from really getting on people later, you know. A little bit of this keeps me from a big sin later. We feel helpless to temptation. But Paul says, don't be discouraged. He will not suffer you to be attempted above that which you are able. He will make a way of escape. Number four is this, or number five. God delivers us from apathy. Delivers us from apathy. Now, what exactly is that way of escape? That's the million-dollar question. Uh, we, we, We could talk about this all day, but we'll just touch on it. And let me just make the point that God delivers us from apathy. And what I mean by that is there is something you actually have to do. It didn't say God will make a way of escape and completely remove the temptation, though he might do that. He's done that in my life with things, probably done that in your life with some things. We are called to some kind of action here in this passage, right? Let me give you a couple points of action. The first one is uh, found in the previous verse, but I'm going to touch on 14 in a minute, what's on the screen. Notice it says, he will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now hear that word, you may be able to bear it. There are times when you're in temptation, when you feel like you're in the grip, that you just need spiritual strength. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You can't shelter yourself from it. You've done all you can. And you've just got to, frankly, become a stronger person. That's what the word means. That by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will make you stronger in those moments as you rely on him. When I was a kid, we used to have an old Willis Jeep. It was a 52, I think, you know. Um, This is old army Jeeps. And my father and grandfather had a place in Vermont. There was a hill behind. There were times that Jeep was going up, I felt like it was going to flip over. You know, that steep. And, And I used to love that Jeep. That thing was so unbelievably slow, but powerful. It would just, the wheels never stopped turning no matter how much weight that thing felt like it was pulling no matter what the incline. And when I think about being strengthened in adversity, I always think of that little Willis Jeep. As a young kid in the backseat, just, you know, the Lord gives you that kind of strength that you may be able to bear it, the text says. You're going to be the pillar on the bridge. It takes a lot of weight day after day. It stresses, but it doesn't break because of God's grace. Now, number two is this one. Not only does he sometimes give us the strength to bear under a temptation, sometimes God is giving us the strength to flee from those things the best we can. See what the next verse says, verse 14? Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Get it out of your life. Get away from your idolatry. Get an accountability group to help you get away from that idolatry. In other words, don't dabble in the idolatry. Paul here is talking to a church that's doing meat sacrifice to idols. I won't go into the whole discussion. Many of you know what I'm talking about. But they are going as close to the line as they possibly can without falling over it. 
And that's why Paul says, take heed lest you fall. You're on thin ice. Just be careful. That's what Paul is saying. Maybe you need to think about fleeing away from that idolatry. Don't stand in the middle of it anymore. That word flee, I love this Greek word fuego. It's great, the English word fugitive. You hear that in this passage, fugitive? Run from the idolatry. Break free from the idolatry. Be like Joseph who ran away from Potiphar's wife. And even though she reached out and grabbed his coat, he still ran. Verse 14, see, verse 13 tells us sometimes God is going to give you the strength to bear under the temptation. Other times he gives you the strength to flee away from the temptation. That way of escape always comes in one of two ways. He either strengthens us in the temptation or he gives us the strength to flee that temptation. But he never leaves us by ourselves. Now, here's the last question I want to ask. Where do you find the strength to do these things in the season of temptation? And that comes in the next verses. Let me read you 15 and 16. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, good Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And that's what the cup. What is Paul saying when he brings Jesus into this passage now? He's saying something like this. We find strength in temptation when we love Christ more than we love our idols. When Jesus is more important to us than money, and Jesus is more important than just being successful, and Christ is the most important thing in my life, that's where we find the strength to flee or bear under these kinds of things when we're in the throes of temptation. Do I love Jesus more than my idol? Do I love Jesus more than the spiritual danger? Brian Chappell's got a great book. We used to have it on the back table. COVID, we removed him. We'll put him back out soon. Uh, it's Holiness by Grace. Great book on growing in Christ, Holiness by Grace. And he tells a little story in that book. He says that his wife and her friend uh, had their kids at the zoo, little kids. And there was a new attraction at that zoo, Big Cat Country. You got lions and tigers, and they let them out of their cages, and they'd let them roam around, you know, with the big fences. And you could go up top where you could look down through the glass there and see Big Cat Country. And so 25 feet above there, we're up on top. The boys, the two boys, two sons, innocently walked right where the, the rail was. They slipped through and walked out right above Big Cat Country. There was a beam that went across, and they're standing on the beam 25 feet above Cat Country, you know. They could fall at any moment. And he describes how the boys would go, Mommy, look, big cat country, you know, when you got these kids. And you can imagine Kathy, the wife, she's absolutely horrified. If she screams, the kids might get terrified and fall. So she doesn't want to just start yelling at them. So what does Kathy do to help the kids that are out there over danger? She kneels down and she opens her arms really wide. Boys, come give mommy a hug. She said, and immediately the boys turned around and, and walked and crossed back under the rail there and gave their mommy a big hug. And Brian Chapel says, they came running for the love that saved them from the danger they could not perceive. I love that. And so Jesus stands with his arms wide open, calling us to run to the love that saves us from dangers that we cannot even perceive. Today we take the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the body of Christ, the blood of Christ.
we're reminded what a wonderful Savior we have. Our idolatry doesn't look like a big deal. Man, it's a terrible spiritual danger. It's that which causes us to trip and fall. And so today when we take the body and the blood of the Lord together, what are we doing? We are running to the open arms that rescues us with a love that saves us from the dangers we sometimes don't even perceive. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for caring about us, even when we don't care about ourselves. I pray, Lord, you'd work in our hearts, work in our lives. Speak to us. Give us the grace and the strength we need to flee idolatry, fuego. Get as far from it as we can. And where we can't flee, for whatever reason, we bear up under with the power of the Holy Spirit. You are always there for us. We are safe, not because we're outside of the reach of temptation and evil. We are safe because we are within your grasp. So I pray we would trust you. Deliver us from overconfidence, discouragement, isolation, and all that comes with it. In Christ's name, amen.